We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. The year was 1992. The place was Syria. Some of you in this room, I imagine, weren't even born yet. My husband Larry, an investigative reporter, was sent to Syria by the Washington Jewish Week to report on the remaining four or five thousand Jews who were said to be finally receiving exit visas after decades of being denied the right to leave because of the government's fear that they would move to Israel, Syria's great enemy. Jews had had a long and successful history there until about the first quarter of the last century, when most of them left due to economic reasons, and most of them settled in New York, and most of them settled in Brooklyn, where I'm from. I couldn't resist. The fortune of those who stayed shifted dramatically with the creation of the State of Israel. Suddenly, they were seen as an enemy population within. Their movements within the country were closely monitored and, se- and severely restrict, and, and the government severely res- restricted the teaching of Hebrew in Jewish schools. Attacks against Jews escalated, and even their businesses were often boycotted. In 1992, exit visas were finally issued to Jewish families. Things seemed to be looking up. As soon as Larry got to Syria, he's sitting right there, the journalist, (laughs) he was assigned a government minder. And the government minder was supposed to do two things, act as a translator and also really mind what people said. Um, and make sure they didn't say things that directly con- contradicted the government's narrative. This intimidated most of the people that Larry spoke with from making statements that challenged the government and really limited the information he could get. Until, that is, one fine morning when he went to synagogue in Aleppo. The government minder was really respectful of his need to pray and stayed in the courtyard Larry was in, like, sight that he could, he was in the government minder's sight, but not with an earshot. So as Larry prayed with the Jews of Syria, and they were in the midst of services and people getting up and sitting down and going to the Torah and sitting down, people would sidle up to him right in the middle of the tefillot, the, the prayers, and begin to mumble information to him. So it went something like this, according to my husband. Blessed are you. I know you are from a Jewish newspaper in America. Elohe Abraham, God of Abraham. They say we're getting exit visas. Elohe Yitzchak. But we're really not getting the exit visas. And then someone else sidles up beside him. 
The government says they're giving us exit visas, but they need to be stamped. I'm not really mumbling it quite the way a Syrian Jew would, but you can imagine. They need to be stamped by the Ministry of the Interior. We can't leave. We still can't leave because they're stamped. They're, they're not stamping our exit visas. By the time the congregation was singing, singing his last song, Adon Allah, Master of the Universe, Larry had the whole story. And that story led to a news article in the Washington Jewish Week that was also picked up by the mainstream press. And the version of the government was challenged, and that helped eventually the government to finally release the Jews of Syria, the, the remaining four to 5,000 Jews. So after more than a thousand years of life in Syria, Jews had come to the end of the line. They were stuck there for decades since the creation of the state of Israel in a kind of, in a holding pattern. The same old, same old wasn't working. Instead of on that day going on with their rote prayers, they took a risk. They took the risk of mumbling vital information to an atheist American journalist standing in their midst. So when does the same old, same old not work for you? Where are, your, where are you stuck with parts of your life perhaps leading you nowhere, applying the same old strategies so that by the end of the day or the end of the week or maybe even the year or after decades, you wonder why you're facing the same old problems? It reminds me of the oft-repeated quote that's attributed to Albert Einstein, but really no one can prove that he really said it. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But I would say that's not quite insane. It's just kind of neurotic. Or, or maybe it's just human. I mean, we all get stuck at certain points, and we all repeat the same old narrative. We're all in the same old loop in our heads. I imagine all of us at some point or another wishes hard that things were different and we don't quite know how to get there. In this week's Parsha, in this week's portion, Sacred Writings, that we'll be reading tomorrow, we have a moment of something different, of something that goes beyond the same old, same old. There's a moment with Rebecca and Isaac where Rebecca has been barren for 20 years, 20 years or almost 20 years, um, and they finally try something different. What they try is they reach out in prayer to God. As it says in chapter 20, 25, verse 21, and Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife, because she was barren, and Adonai answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So it seems on the face of this that this is the kind of verse you would expect in the Bible, right? Someone prays to God and God answers. However, this, this verse is really singular for three reasons. It's different. It kind of breaks a generational pattern. So number one, Abraham never prayed on behalf of his wife's barrenness. And in fact, according to Rashi, 
she's really furious about this. She says to him, when you pray to God, what will you give me since I am going childless, not we? You prayed only for yourself, whereas you should have prayed for both of us. So Abraham was not a we with Sarah. And then the generation after Rebekah and Isaac, Jacob, their son, this is the way he responds to Rebecca when she's des I'm sorry, to Rachel when she's desperate for a child. Rachel says, give me children, and if not, I am dead. And what does Jacob say in response to her? Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, am I instead of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of a womb, the fruit of the womb? So it didn't occur to him to pray for his wife. It didn't even occur to him to be compassionate for his wife. Okay, there's a second way in this, in which this verse and their dynamic is singular. Both Abraham and Jacob slept with other women to deal with their wives' barrenness, and Isaac did not. Isaac is the only monogamous patriarch that we have. I think that's impressive. Instead of sleeping with another woman, what does Isaac do? He waits for 20 years. He does basically nothing. And then he stands up and prays for his wife. Right? And for their condition. Right? For their joint problem. Finally, the third way this is really, this verse is really singular. He not only prays, he prays with her. L'nochach ishto, in her presence. Rashi gives us, Rashi, the 11th century commentator, gives us a beautiful image that both Isaac and Rebecca are praying at the same time, one in this corner of the room and one is in that corner of the room. So again, you feel like they are a solid unit. They're a solid we. This is their problem that they're sharing. They're pouring out their hearts together. There's another, so those are the generational patterns that are broken. There's no other husband, as far as I can remember, who prays with his wife in the Torah. If anyone else can remember of an example of such, love to hear it, either now or later. Um, there's something, but there's something else besides breaking the generational patterns that's really fascinating about this verse. And in studying it this week, I kind of fell in love with this verse. Right now, it's my favorite in the entire Torah. And it says, the verse here for pray is not Bayit Palel, right? Bayit Palel relates to Tzfilah, right? Um, what we do here every week. It's a different kind of verb. Is it the Bayit Etar? So it's, it's maybe more accurately translated as Isaac entreated God on behalf of his wife. And what's really interesting, that's the active form of the verse, the way God responds to Isaac is using the same verb, but it's the passive form of it. Um, so God is entreated, entreated by Isaac. Right? So what Isaac does, God kind of does back in some way. That's how God answers Isaac. 
He wasn't treated. Yes. So aren't crying out and being answered radically different kind of gestures? Why would the same word be used? So there's a Hasidic Rebbe, the Nativo, and I have to quote a Hasidic Rebbe here at Ramamu because we're talking about Neo-Hasidism. So I'm Neo, and here's the Rebbe, the Hasidic Rebbe. Um, the Nitivot Shalom, who was a 20th century um, Hasidic Rebbe born in Europe and then moved to, to Israel, um, explains this kind of strange doubling of the verb. He says that there are times that there, there are times that a wall of steel exists between us and God, and we feel, we feel our prayers are orphaned, that they aren't being listened to. In such times, there is a necessity to dig deeper and create a channel around and under the wall. God's answering response comes through the same channel that we've created. So we create a channel, and God's answer comes through that channel, that same channel, and that, according to the Nitivot Shalom, is why that same verb is used. The image that comes to me around this is of children digging tunnels under the sand. And if you remember that, that feeling of digging, 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 and then finally you meet someone else's fingers right underneath the sand. When we reach out, and reach deep, we find that those efforts are mirrored by God or maybe by the universe. I want to stay, take a step back here for a moment. I can imagine some of you saying, what are you talking about? God doesn't answer our prayers. Or maybe I'm responding to my atheist husband over there. <laughs> God doesn't answer our prayers. I mean, look at all the suffering in the world. If God answered our prayers, would there be this kind of suffering in the world? So I want to answer that by way of an anecdote. Often when people meet me, especially Jews, and I tell them I'm a rabbi, they immediately tell me, well, I don't believe in God. As if my very profession has issued an accusation to them. Right? And they're defending themselves and somehow delegitimating what I do. And what I say to them is, the same God I, I, the same God you don't believe in, I don't believe in. Thus putting us on the same side of the divide. For me, belief, I don't believe in a God who creates these dividers between believe, believers and unbelievers. So to return to the question of prayer. So in other words, I'm sorry, in other words, I don't believe in any kind of literal God. I don't believe in the kind of God that someone says, oh, that doesn't exist. Because it's much more intangible for me, right? Beyond language, maybe a God who's described by verbs instead of nouns. You know, it's, it's nothing that you can point to, say, oh, I believe that, and I would say, oh, no, I don't believe that, or I do believe that, and someone else says, no, I don't believe that. So it's, it's, um, it's something that's really kind of impossible to describe, but it's still something. And perhaps what unites us, me and those unbelievers, um, is the search for something meaningful or sacred or holy, either in the world or beyond the world. So to take us back to prayer, I don't believe in a God who in any kind of literal sense answers our prayer. What I do believe 
is in the power of reaching out. That if we reach out to one another, to the person next to us, to a family member, to our beloved, a therapist, or maybe even to the source of the creator of the universe, right? Whatever language we want to give it. I believe that if we do that, if we stand like Rebecca and Isaac in the depth of their pain and longing and stand in that place and reach out, that the universe will answer us. Not answer, not give us what we want, but answer us, which are two very different things. If we go back to the example of Larry and the Syrian Jews in 1992, then we we see that they went beyond their rote prayers and they took a risk to reach out to the person that just might have the tools to get them out. So it could be prayer. It could be reaching out to the person next to you. It could be somehow going beyond the same old, same old. And I end, or I bring this to a landing, as Rabbi David likes to say, with another quote that's attributed to Einstein, but no one knows if he really said it. The same consciousness which created the problem is not going to create the solution. In other words, if we stay in the endless loop of our own minds in the same old narratives, with the same old fantasies of redemption, we ain't going nowhere. But if we reach beyond ourselves and connect to another person, and connect to another consciousness, or connect to another force in the universe, then we go beyond, I believe, our dead end. It doesn't matter to whom. Just pour out your heart from a place of longing and open yourself to an answer. Some answer, some unexpected answer from some source outside of yourself. Shabbat shalom.